Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. If anything in today's show has caused questions or caused distress to you, please call Lifeline on 131114, 131114, or visit lifeline.org.au. We're now joined on the phone by Paul Hartwood. Uh, he works for Mind Australia as a peer educator, group worker, and mental health coach. Paul himself spent almost 20 years living with schizoaffective disorder, but found a way back to good health and employment in the mental health services. Paul, uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. Um, look, just to give us a bit of background for our listeners as well, could you tell me a bit about your experience with mental ill health? I mean, there's a lot of misinformation and assumption out there about mental conditions. What, What is schizoaffective disorder and how did it affect your life? Yeah, so I, I describe it maybe differently to how the psychiatrist might describe it. I, um, I, I, my, my type of schizoaffective disorder is depressive type. And there are two types. I think the other is bipolar type. But for me, um, it, it's, a, it's a gradual decline over a period of years of depression. I felt um, depression probably starting at around age 12 or 13. And because that was left untreated for so long, um, it, it um, degenerated to a stage where I was um, psychotic and delusional and um, I believed a whole range of different things that weren't true mm-hmm. um, the experience of that I, I was hospitalized uh, four times over the period of about five or ten years um, and I now take medication a couple of different medications and that keeps me in check um, I've tried stopping the medications at different times and things get a bit pear-shaped so I try and just keep sort of low doses, maintenance doses of medication um, keeps me pretty much on on a level. Some people recover and don't need the medication. Um, Some people need higher doses. Uh, For me, just a maintenance dose seems to work fairly well. When when things were were poorly, were you able to to work? Were you able to maintain relationships? Or was it something that really um, uh, affected your life in a a range of ways? What were some of the impacts of of living with, with mental illness? Some of the worst times of, of my illness, I, um, I lived out of my car or lived on the riverbank, um, not because I had to, but because I didn't want to be around people. Sometimes mm-hmm. I would travel, um, you know, go to drive, leave Mildura and go to Canberra and, and spend hours on the road, stay in a motel and um, have a spa and, and, and spend lots of money and then um, come back to come back to, I was staying at my mother's place at that time and I'd come back and, and then not long after that I'd be gone again. So it really was impossible to work. Um, I, during some of the better times, I picked up some um, labouring work and part-time work and was able to do a few things, um, but it really, really quite debilitating while I was unwell. And what was your... What was your pathway back to recovery? What I know that recovery is different for all different individuals. I know you help uh, ind- individuals now to find their pathway to recovery, but, but what was yours? What shape did your recovery take? Yeah, okay. Um, I think recovery is individual for everybody. Um, everybody experiences it differently, but for me, the birth of my son um, was a turning point. I, I um, Lots of things changed in my life. My relationship with my partner became much stronger around that time and my sense of family was always important and and, um, 
the strengthening of my family was was really helpful in my recovery. Um, I've done some mindfulness and uh, meditation and so forth. That's all fairly helpful. The um, the medication being settled and stable was very helpful. That was probably what started me on the path. And um, this job um, has been invaluable for for helping me along the recovery pathway. So for other people, when you work one-on-one with people going through uh, mental ill health challenges, uh, when, when you meet other people, what are some of the, um, the stories uh, you tell them from your own experience to help them begin that journey of recovery? There's a, there's a story that I love. Um, it comes from the five-day peer training that we do at Mind when new workers come into the organisation as peer workers and we have um, people from other organisations come to us for training and I've been involved in facilitating that training and there's a story that comes from one of the gurus who set up the training and it's a, it's a, we just call it the campfire story but it goes along the lines of um, if you come, come out in the morning, um, come out of your tent in the morning on a camp and the, the campfire has burnt down to just ash um, there's no smoke rising from the campfire. It just seems to be completely dormant. But if you were to put your hand into those ashes, you might find that there's hot coals in there and you might burn yourself. Um, but if you were to gently blow away the ash from the coals, you can expose some, some hotter coals and, um, and get them flaming a little bit. And then you can start to build the fire with... Um, a few leaves and a few smaller twigs and gradually build up to larger sticks and then you can start to put logs back on. Um, if you were to put a big log straight onto the hot coals, uh, the fire would go out again. Um, so it's kind of a metaphor that I use for recovery where uh, sometimes it's a matter of just finding a very small spark of what a person was before or wants to be and, and, and tending that tending that spark uh, until you can make it into a just a gently warming fire. Um, mm. If you put too much on the fire at once, it, it, um, you don't have any result. It just goes out again. It's a, a story that I use as often as I can because it relates to you know where I come from. I come from the country and have done a lot of camping and love the bush. Mm. How, how do you think your... That's a beautiful story. I think it's a, a really good metaphor... Um, how do you, how does your lived experience uh, help others in a way that perhaps people in the allied health services who haven't had a lived experience of mental health uh, might lack? It's something about walking walking beside somebody and not not trying to be an expert. I I think people are their own experts around their own stories. You know, you you can um, you can try to assist someone to to bring out their strengths and their and their particular um, story, but it's not. I, I don't want to. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal, or I want to be. I want to be an equal with um, people that I work with and support. And do you like the work, Paul? Um, you've been doing it for a while now. What What do you like about it? It has been the making of me. I really feel, Jackson. I. Um, I did lots of different work along the way. I um, started as a jewellery engraver when I left school and I uh, worked as a sheep shearer for six years in New South Wales and um, drove taxis for a number of years. Um, But this is the first job that I feel is really a career for me. I've done uh, one-to-one peer work and then I got into the peer training with Mind and I'm now, my, my role has changed with the, under the NDIS structure, we're doing many more groups um, in what we now call our Thrive Centre, and I'm the um, peer educator and group education and group worker. Um, so that's allowing me to facilitate groups much more, and it's just been a it's it's been the making of me. I I often say that people that come to me for support get to spend an hour or an hour and a half a week with a peer worker each week whereas I get to spend 
uh, 12 or 15 times that hour and a half with a peer um, and share and share my stories and, and listen to and listen to the stories of other people. So it's been it's been um, the making of me. Have you ever had someone you were working with, either one on one or or in a group, follow the same path and end up working alongside you sometime down the track? No, no, and I and I remind myself sometimes that people don't always want to go that way. When I first found peer work. I, I encouraged a lot of people towards peer work, but I think for a lot of people, um, so, some people were a landscape gardener before they became unwell, and they just want to get back to being a landscape gardener. Not, not everybody chooses peer work. Um, I, I, I have had a, someone that came to the organisation as a volunteer um, is now a peer worker, with, with the organisation, or actually um, was a was a student placement, and then started um, to volunteer, and is now a peer worker with mine. So, I've kind of been involved in that journey a little bit. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. And the final thing I want to ask Paul is, um, you know, on behalf of listeners out there, I'm sure are interested in, if you're living with or supporting someone else who's living with a severe and persistent mental ill health issue, what would be your first piece of advice or what's a simple technique uh, to support yourself or to support that person you're caring for into recovery? I think, I think it's about just being there as often as possible, being, being present and um, and being a, being a good listener, but also asking good questions, asking asking questions that get to the depth of what's going on for that person, um, and and not being not being too judgmental about if you know sometimes people that are suffering mental distress say some things that tend to sound a little strange to. To people who aren't suffering that distress, so just being accepting that that's where that person is at, not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing, but just just being accepting and and going with the stories and and talking things out. I think is probably probably my one piece of advice. Yeah, it's a it's a tough road for people on the outside. I I um I sympathise with my family and friends at at the depths of the um, illness for me must have been terribly, terribly hard for them. But I had some fantastic people around me, and I think that was worth their strength that they were they were good listeners and they and they were prepared to go there. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us this morning as part of our uh, mental mental health week here on Three CR. Uh, and good luck with the future. Uh, good luck with your work and your son and and family and uh, all the best, Paul. Thank you very much, Jackson. CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD. OK, Puffer, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes a truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. We're joined now by Con Karapanagiotidis. Con is the CEO and founder of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Con, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre does? Sure. We're a one-stop shop charity that provides um, aid, health, advocacy and support services to people seeking asylum. Uh, We do it with no federal government funding. We're supporting close to 5,000 people at the moment. And we have a team of around 1,200 volunteers and around 100 staff 
that provide a place of hope and welcome and support for people that are seeking protection in Australia. We've asked you on the show today because it's Mental Health Week and a lack of media access means we don't often hear a lot about the unique mental health issues faced by people who are seeking protection in Australia. There's a piece by Dr Samantha Ratnam published in New Matilda a couple of months ago that looks at this in more detail and I was hoping we could talk about some of the points that she raised. So one of the most shocking ones being that 90% of people who spend three months or more in detention develop a mental health condition. So Dr Ratnam says one of the contributing factors is the restrictions that are placed on people who are seeking protection, especially those who arrive by boat. Can you tell us a little bit about these restrictions? Sure. Um, Australia has a two-tier system, like an apartheid system almost for those who arrive by sea. So if you arrive by sea, you have the following. One, no access to permanent protection, no access to family reunion, no access to permanency, in addition to that, people who have arrived by sea in 2012 and 13 had to wait up to four years just to be allowed to apply for asylum, uh, spent half that period without the right to work or even the right to do volunteer work. So in other words, the federal government, the Turnbull government, Peter Dutton, before that, Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison, create a climate that is, that is one of terrorising refugees. And that is, by creating a climate where you're in limbo, with no safety net, with no progress, with no purpose, with no future and no safety, you actually create a recipe for disaster. You actually create the very conditions that are going to cause trauma, Mm. depression, anxiety and despair. Can you share with us some of the ways you've seen this trauma manifest in in people seeking protection in Australia? Sure. Um, Without being going into too much graphic detail, I'm probably just a trigger warning for anyone that, that this is close to them. Thank you. In terms of self-harm and that, over the 16 years since I started the ASOC, I've had to, I've had to talk, you know, hundreds of people out of taking their own lives. I've at times had to physically stop people from trying to take their own lives. Like, it drives people to absolute uh, despair. People seeking asylum are incredibly resilient people. They're people that have survived oppressive regimes, they survived the perilous journey here, they survived their detention centres. What's uh, the most disturbing thing is that often people say that it's how they were treated here that was more traumatising than, than that which they fled. And so you see it in self-harm attempts, suicide attempts. You see it in depression. You see it in family breakdown. You see it in all loss of hope. Uh, you see it in just people feeling so um, so unwelcomed in this country. And it's really quite devastating and heartbreaking to see people who have come here only seeking safety and protection being left without any hope or any sense of safety. And and at the ASOC, we deal with it on an hourly basis. We're having to deal with a mental health crisis every day. We're often having to call the psychiatric outreach team to come and assist us. It's really quite heartbreaking to see people who you know stayed strong for as long as they possibly could being brought to the point of absolute despair, deliberately. Remember this, it's absolutely deliberate what our government is doing right now. And even when... strip people of all hope. Even when people are granted asylum, often after years in detention, these mental health issues don't just disappear, right? No, they don't. Whether they're in detention or whether they're in a community, they don't disappear in either situation. So I've worked with many people who uh, spent upwards of you know, three, five, seven years in detention who, upon being released, there's the initial relation of being released and then the ongoing trauma of what we've done to them. And then for the thousands we're working with now, the ones found to be refugees, there's the initial elation of getting a three- or five-year temporary visa and then there's the reality of, oh, that means I can't sponsor my family, I can't go to university and become something, uh, I can't ever leave the country, I can't ever call Australia home. Um, that then, you know, that, that elation disappears very quickly because people are so desperate to finally call Australia home and we won't let them. And people are so desperate to have their family here, which is how you have a sense of home, and we won't let them. Dr Ratnam believes that 
you know, much of this trauma is preventable. She talks about her experience arriving as a refugee from Sri Lanka 30 years ago. You know, she and her family were welcomed with open arms. They were given full access to our public education and health system. And that just couldn't be more different to the way people who are seeking protection are treated today. What are some of the steps that you want to see the government take to prevent mental health trauma that is inflicted on, on people seeking safety here in Australia? Yeah, as Dr. Ratman says, it's really quite simple. We, we, we know what works. We actually provide this model to people who we bring here as offshore refugees that we refuse to provide to those already on our shores. And that is, it's an early intervention, strength-based, holistic model. And what that simply means is, the moment a person arrives, you settle them, you integrate them, you give them access to English programs if they need it, employment programs, you provide a safety net so that for those who can't work initially, they're not going hungry or homeless. You don't politicise their existence. You make them feel welcome. You focus on their strengths. You focus on the fact that these people are resilient and resourceful and entrepreneurial. So what you do to allow people to succeed is you welcome them. You give them the opportunity to contribute. You provide real pathways to that. You provide real networks. You help them orientate both the Australian workplace and the Australian community. Uh, you give them the fundamentals that make people feel welcomed and valued and cared for. Mm. So and when you focus on the strengths, people thrive. There's steps that the government can take, but it's really easy to feel helpless. You know, when we see the treatment of people seeking protection, what can we do um, as individuals? Sure. sure. Some really practical things. I always say to people, you can advocate, donate or participate. And coming up on the 26th of October um, is the HRC's Next volunteer night here in Footscray. So I encourage your listeners to come along to that. Bookings open on the 12th of October. You can just find out how to do that on our website at asoc.org.au. At the moment, you can also advocate. And we've got our Brisbane Heat campaign. It was obviously a day of action yesterday. And again, you can go to our website and we've got details. We're asking people to do a really simple thing, which is call Bill Sheldon's office and ask him to show some leadership on this issue and to ask him to demand that these people on the route and Manus that have been there for more than four years are brought to safety. The first thing is you can donate, whether that's if you've got a few dollars to spare or your in-kind goodness and support. But the most important thing uh, is to do something. None of us are helpless and none of us are powerless. But the only way things change is if we care enough and are willing to actually stand up for and build the community of welcome that we want for refugees and that refugees themselves deserve. So advocate, donate or participate. Thank you, Con, so much for joining us this morning. If you'd like to find out more, that was www.asrc.org.au and we'll put all of that information up on our website. All right, thank you. Green Left Weekly Radio. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. Tune in every Friday morning at 8am on 3CR. And next up is Over the Wall. Over the Wall is a look at the, so- the barriers to social support and safety nets from the perspective of those most affected and the worker advocates who support them. This week on Over the Wall, Peter and Duncan discussed cuts to TAFE funding and also the cashless welfare card. First item to discuss today is an item in the 2017 federal budget to cut welfare eligibility to students studying TAFE courses. The federal government continues to chip away at the social safety net relentlessly. This time it's a carefully executed plan to cease welfare income for students who study a TAFE course the government doesn't approve of. 
In 2016, the Turnbull government axed by 56% the number of TAFE courses eligible for vet fee help, which is a student fee loan up front that also included reduced fees for people on welfare and a low income. The 2017 federal budget intends to also cut income assistance, things like youth allowance, Ausstudy and Abstudy, for students who take on a VET course that's not approved on the study list by the federal government. So, to sum up, listeners, Step 1, 2016 by the government, get rid of more than half of the TAFE areas eligible for government support with a bias particularly against the arts. Step 2, 2017. If people still choose to study a delisted course, such as arts or journalism, then they lose their welfare payments. The budget measure is still to pass through Parliament, but is due to start next year. The government said it would only apply to new students and would save the public purse $182 million over five years. The background to this story is the rotting of the TAFE system by dodgy registered training organisations, RTOs. A 2015 Senate review of the TAFE system revealed students signed up for courses without due consideration and review of their abilities by RTOs. A phone call inquiry about studying could quickly lead to an enrolment in the same phone call. Under this deregulated system, private training colleges were also free to set their own fees for courses. Modelling by the Grattan Institute, estimates 40% of those loans will never be repaid. The opinion of Over the Wall is that this was a stuff-up by governments to provide oversight after deregulating the TAFE system. Dodgy operators exploited a TAFE system that hadn't been set up properly by government in the first place. Soon, in 2018, students are set to cop welfare cuts and reduction of TAFE options due to government mismanagement. Citizens are losing their eligibility for income support due to the ineptitude of political oversight after deregulation. To follow along with this argument, listeners, uh, here's a few quotes from a recent edition of The Hack. It's going to really restrict students' ability to choose their preferred career path, said Mark Matthews, the managing director of Sydney Theatre School. It means only the wealthy and well-off can afford to train in a career in the arts. Also in the hack, Green Senator Rachel Seawatt said, the poorest students who don't have family support to study will be the hardest hit. The government says it either wants young people to be working or studying, yet they won't provide the supports for people to do so, she said. Federal TAFE Secretary of the Australian Education Union, Pat Forward, has labelled the proposals Orwellian. The decision to scrap payments for vet students is absolutely social engineering, she said. It is an attempt to channel them into courses that the government has approved based on areas of skills shortages. Rod Cam from the Australian Council of Private Education and Training said when interviewed in The Hack, we're creating a perverse incentive for students to go to university rather than making sure vocational education is a legitimate choice. While it's too early to tell if people are leaving the vet sector in favour of universities, Rod says there's definitely been a massive slump in the number of students enrolling in the sector since the government announced its course eligibility criteria. Rod Cam continued to say, At the diploma and advanced diploma level, it's almost unprecedented how much enrolments have reduced. For the second part of today's program, listeners, Over the Wall is going to focus on the cashless welfare card. I myself recently only became aware of how widespread and how far along this cashless welfare card initiative is by the federal government. More than two years ago, Senator Rachel Seward 
was already identifying in the Senate imminent problems that would appear down the track. Please say no to this flawed approach because it is punitive. It doesn't help people in the long term. Same way as the Northern Territory intervention didn't help people in the long term. We still have the entrenched issues of disadvantage in the Northern Territory, the same way that we'll continue to have those entrenched issues of disadvantage in the East Kimberley and in Sejuna into the long term until we start addressing those underlying causes of disadvantage, those systemic underlying causes that have clearly been identified. That's Green Senator Rachel Seward in Question Time. And on her webpage recently, on the 14th of September 17, Rachel Seward has a headline, National MPs should go and talk to New Start recipients in their communities rather than demand they be dumped on the cashless welfare card. Rachel says... These national MPs are sat in their offices vilifying members of the community struggling to find work. They should get out there and talk to the people they are demonising and want to restrict how they manage their money. This card removes agency from people who are already on a payment that is far too low. When you remove someone's capacity to manage their budget, you make things worse for them. This is only going to serve as a barrier for people finding work. People on low incomes are some of the best money managers around. These MPs are demonising their own constituents. It is appalling. These comments from Green Senator Seward from last month are in relation to the upcoming trials that are being expanded to Bundaberg and to Harvey Bay in Queensland. She also refers to the, the first two waves of assessment of how the regimes happened, which appeared in March and again in July this year. So these describe the situation in the towns that are already using it. For example, Seduna and Kalgoorlie. As trials? Yes, all of them are trials still. She goes on to say that national MPs advocating for this should have a full read and properly assess the Wave 2 evaluation report into the card without their blinkers on. It has holes so big you could drive a truck through them. Now, the Wave 1 and Wave 2 reports on what's been happening with the trials. On the cashless welfare card? Yes. And these are really the first reports we've seen. They are of such shoddy methodology that key sociologists around the country have pointed out that they're worthless. Yeah, the questionnaire that people have been asked to complete who have been on the trial, the questions are kind of loaded? That's right. The questions are voluntary. They are asked in an atmosphere in which the person responding has an advantage by appearing to be using less alcohol, using less drugs, or gambling less. And they don't seem to be paired up with any actual economic studies of what's happened in these towns, and that's particularly relevant when we see anecdotal evidence that in in some of these towns, quite obviously, the alcohol-related businesses are going to the wall. put a trigger warning for the next 10 minutes with a potential discussion of homophobia, transphobia and violence in prison. On the phone, I have Miranda Gibson, who is the newsletter editor for Inside Out Australia, which is an LGBTIQ plus solidarity network for people in prison and with experience of incarceration. Um, Welcome to Monday Breakfast, Miranda. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So um, I'm just going to get straight into it because we've got a lot to talk about. First of all, um, for those of us who aren't familiar with Inside Out Australia, can you tell us um, about the organisation and what your organisation does? Yeah, sure. So as you said, um, it's so we're a grassroots group. Um, we focus on our queer and trans prisoner solidarity. And we the main focus of our organisation at the moment is to produce a newsletter, um, which we'll talk a bit more about through the interview. But, um, yeah, the newsletter is 
provides a space for queer and trans people in prison to um, have conversations, to have their writing and artwork published, um, and that's sort of the foundation of the organisation at this stage, and then hopefully moving on to other projects as well. We've got about 70 um, members um, who are inside, and then there's just a couple of us on the outside who um, work on the admin side of things to sort of keep the newsletter going and to um, coordinate writing to people and collecting content and that sort of thing. And it's fantastic that you've got people who are currently incarcerated as part of your organisation, as leading the, the, the project, um, and that's really heartening. Um, the Inside Out has, um, as you said, a newsletter that's um, it's currently on its win- winter edition. Um, can you tell us about the newsletter? What are the stories and poems about and who's it by and for? Yep, so all the content... Um, is from people who are inside or who have been inside. Um, it's uh, predominantly, um, you know, we say it's for LGBTIQ uh, folks who are inside or, or have been inside, but obviously it's, you know, something that everyone can read and get something from as well. Um, we do make it available on the outside uh, through our website and sometimes, you know, we have printed editions if we might, you know, be at an event or something like that. But the focus is really not not necessarily on, you know, educating people on the outside about the experience in prison, but really about creating a platform for people on the inside to share their stories with each other and hopefully to build a sense of community and connection um, with each other through that process. So you've got already a very clear um, idea of purpose, of mission for Inside Out Australia and Inside Out's newsletter. Um, what were the origins of Inside Out? Like, why, why was the newsletter started and were there, were there inspirations for this publication? Yeah, well, actually, I um, was sort of inspired to get this um, off the ground because I have a pen pal who I've been writing to for about five years who um, is in prison in America and he's a trans man who a couple of years ago said to me and a few other people he was writing to that he wanted to have a International Day of Solidarity for trans people in prison um, because it was such an isolating experience um, and... So I sort of got involved in helping to support him in running that and through that sort of realised, oh, there's nothing really like that um, here in Australia. There's, you know, I found out about different organisations overseas, particularly inspired by Black and Pink in America. Um, So they are, you know, they've been going for 10 years, so they're very well established. They've got about 6,000 members in prison um, and they do a newsletter as well, which is monthly, but they also do a bunch of other um, things, some research surveys with their members. They do, they've produced a few books of writing um, from their members and they also have um, other ways of supporting people, like they have a hotline for people to call up who are in prison. So, um, yeah, I sort of looked at that and a few other things around the world, other sort of pen pal systems and things like that and that sort of was the inspiration for, for getting it going and obviously talked to people I knew who were inside or who had been inside and, um, you know, we sort of thought, okay, we'll give it a go. So we put an ad out in a publication that goes out into prisons and we thought we'll just see how it goes, what people inside sort of want and hopefully, you know, let the people inside direct the 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 way that the project would go and from that we've, you know, grown to 70 members inside and, you know, have, you know, been able to produce now four newsletters and we've had really great feedback about about the project from people inside and um, hoping to sort of move on as well to other aspects of the organisation. A lot of people are sort of asking for a pen pal program and we're sort of working out how we can establish that and maybe go on to do other things as well. That's fantastic. Um, so it, um, there there are stories of isolation and part of the, the, the purpose of the newsletter, it sounds, is to combat that isolation um, and this is sort of really reflected in the uh, the stories in the newsletter reflect the tensions in the lives of LGBTIQ prisoners and tensions with prison staff and with other prisoners alike. And this is in some of the stories. What are some standout pieces in it that cover that that tension? Yeah, I think I mean people write about a whole range of things for the newsletter. Um, but as you say, there is a lot of stories about that that sort of talk about that experience of being in prison and particularly being queer or trans in prison um, and sort of some of the, the, the things that that involves. And um, I guess that's one of the things we have had really good feedback on, the fact that it's not just, you know, important to share that 
that story for people personally, but also hearing other people's experiences and seeing that commonality in that as well. Um, I guess we've had stories, um, you know, some of the content can be pretty heavy and hard to read. Um, and I guess, you know, having that feedback that even though it is hard to read, it's really powerful for people has been, you know, affirming to, to know what direction to take it in. But, yeah, people definitely um, have been really open in sharing their stories, um, some stories about homophobic violence that they've experienced at the hands of prison guards um, or other inmates, um, what the experience of what it's like to be, um, you know, queer and trans in prison, uh, structural issues uh, around homophobia and transphobia within the prison system that has really stopped people from being able to affirm their gender identity or their sexuality inside, um, and also people's experience of sexual assault inside or outside have sort of been talked about as well. So, you know, I guess, yeah, there's a, a whole range of different experiences um, around that pr- the prison system that people have, have talked about. That's right. And the newsletter also tells, on the other hand, um, stories of joy and affirmation. Do you have a favourite that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Um, well, I don't necessarily have a favourite, but I think there's definitely a lot of, you know, affirmation. And I think one of the things that I find inspiring about the newsletter is seeing the support that it sort of offers to each other and sort of people will write back about another person's piece in the previous newsletter and, you know, share tips and ideas about how to get through the prison system. Like there might be, you know, sometimes they will write ideas about how do you make prison food better um, or, you know, how do you sort of get through or how do you make the most out of like programs that you have to do on the inside Um, and also that we have really great artwork and also uh, um, a comic strip that sort of just started up Um, and yeah so I just think there's a whole range of content that's really inspiring and exciting to read and I think yeah people on the inside and people on the outside have given really good feedback about um, how inspiring it is to you know hear people stories of survival and also people's you know yeah joy joy um i guess one um story that comes to mind is that we had um one member write to us um who was telling us all about um his name is james and he was telling us all about his boyfriend that he met in prison and how much he loves his boyfriend but they'd been separated his boyfriend had been moved to an, another prison which was you know sort of from this homophobic um, system in prison that didn't want them to be together. Um, and then we got a letter from Rory, um, which was telling us all about James and how great he was and, um, you know, how it was so amazing to have met him in prison. And then that was a really amazing thing to put both of their stories in and, and that they could, like, read each other's stories through the newsletter, even though they weren't able to be in the same unit anymore. So, yeah, that was a pretty um, nice story as well. Yeah, it's an awful situation, but it is a very powerful story. And what a what a great way for for them to be able to um, to share their experience with other people who are inside. Um, uh, speaking speaking of inside, the people who um, are subscribed to Inside Out already have your fourth um, your fourth edition, which is the winter edition. Uh, when can we anticipate the next edition? Um, well, we'll be putting out the next one around November. So we try to get one out every, roughly every three months. Mm. Um, that sort of depends on, you know, waiting for different submissions and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, and we'll be putting the winter edition up online soon. So we, we try to put all our editions online. Um, and yeah, we're sort of collecting content at the moment. Usually after we put out an edition, we get quite a flurry of new um, letters and new people subscribing to the to the mailing list and, and new um, content as well. So we're sort of compiling all that at the moment. That's right. And so you take submissions from people who are both inside and people who have had experience of incarceration. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And so how would people be able to um, to make submissions if they wanted to do that? Uh, well, people can um, email us. Um, so our email is info at insideoutaustralia.org. Um, it's also available, um, our, in, our in contact details are also available on the website, which is um, www.insideoutaustralia.org. Um, we also, people can also post submissions to us, which is, you know, obviously how people inside uh, send us submissions, but if people on the outside want to, you know, send us some artwork or something that's easier to post or a written letter, then they can post it to us. So that's, um, PO Box 2446, Footscray, Victoria, uh, 3011 is the postcode. 
Awesome. Um, we'll put all the details up on our website. But um, you know, if 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 anyone wants to read the first three editions, that's um, spring, summer, and autumn. Those are already online on your website as well, which we'll put up on three cr.org.au. Um, thank you so much, Miranda, for coming on Monday Breakfast. Thank you. Alrighty, uh, and now we're going to switch to some community announcements. We'll be back with an interview. You're back with Monday Breakfast. It's 8.22, and last Monday, the 2nd of October, Tamil refugee Rajiv Rajendran died on Manus Island from self-inflicted wounds. Reports are that he cut his own throat on Friday the 29th and was in a state of great distress in the days leading up to his hospitalisation. He was 32. To talk about Rajiv's death and the system of detention surrounding it, we have Aaron Milvaganam from the Tamil Refugee Council on the line. Thank you for joining us, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, So Rajiv Rajendran was a refugee who sought asylum in Australia and he was recognised as a refugee. Do we know why he fled Sri Lanka, just to begin with? Rajiv fled Sri Lanka post-2009 uh, uh, killings. Uh, Rajiv was a medical practitioner in the Tamil Tiger government. Uh, he joined them in 2006. Uh, after the mass killings in 2009, Rajiv was uh, chased by the, the Sri Lankan military intelligence, and as a result, he left the country, uh, went to uh, various parts, and, and then he was in Indonesia, in October 2013, he was on a boat to Australia, which was picked up by Australian customs and taken to Manus Island. And then in the words of Iranian journalist uh, and Manus Island um, detainee Behruz Bouchani, Rajiv Rajendran was then tortured by medical neglect, is the quote. Uh, what do you think he means by that? So Rajiv uh, was uh, on Manus Island for four years. Just like uh, most of the refugees on Manus Island, Rajiv was, uh, you know, aff- affected by mental health deterioration over that four years. Uh, during his final days, um, Rajiv, uh, you know, three days earlier before he died, he cut himself and uh, uh, and, and was hospitalised. Three days later, he was found hanging. Uh, in a you know in, in the hospital uh, that's you know when you go to a hospital you're meant to be getting medical treatment not find yourself in a position where you can hang and, and die um, uh, we, we still don't know whether it, it was a suicide or or whether it was um, uh, you know whether there was foul play uh, involved in it um, they, they you know the the death remain a mystery still. Uh, we've been calling on the Australian government to appoint an independent commission to investigate Rajiv's death and and come you know and, and uh, make it public you know what what really caused Rajiv's uh, death. Uh, we are certain that uh, many of these refugees who are mentally unwell are not being looked after. There are no facilities that can take care of uh, these sort of uh, refugees, uh, these, they, they should be brought to Australia for treatment. There are a few other refugees whose mental health has deteriorated in the, in the recent days. They should be brought to Australia. Immigration Minister is quite adamant that um, he's not going to, regardless of what state they're in, he's not going to be, they're not going to be brought into Australia for medical treatment. A moment ago, you said that he was in hospital because he cut himself, or uh, was he there for that reason? He'd cut himself, or, or for mental health uh, issues? He was there because he tried to commit suicide. So the cutting uh, by was cutting a, his throat. I see. That's I right. see. Right. And, so and he did not die. He did not die as a result of those wounds. He was found hanging in a in a hospital uh, ward. Um, Mm-hmm. So, you is, know, it's, and this is the second time, you know, uh, just over, over two months ago, uh, another refugee was in a similar situation. He was fa- found hanging in the hospital ward and 
Um, and that's why Burus Bhutani was calling it medical neglect. You know, how, why is it happening quite often? Yes, and if he, the hospital knew that he was at risk of suicide, presumably they would have had a surveillance or should have had a surveillance mechanism in place to look, look out for him. That's right. There are many refugees in Australian detention centres uh, in uh, on the mainland who are suicidal, who have attempted suicide uh, on many occasions because they had 24-hour surveillance. You know, many of them survive uh, because of the, the lack of uh, uh, medical support available on Manus Island. Uh, these refugees are being let down. Aran, have you received any comment, you or... Um uh, any of Rajiv's family, any comment or condolences from the Australian or PNG government about Rajiv's death? Well, the Australian government, uh, you know, there were reports initially that the Australian government had demanded uh, 900,000 Sri Lankan rupees uh, from Sri Lankan, uh, from Rajiv's family to bring uh, Rajiv's body back to Sri Lanka. Australian High Commission denied those claims uh last Thursday. However, they have uh, responded uh, by saying that uh, Rajiv's death is not their responsibility. Uh, Repatriation of Rajiv's body is a matter for the Papua New Guinea government. That's right. So the... And and they have not made any other comments, uh, you know, apologizing to the family or, you know, any, any comments that you could see as sympathetic towards the family. That's right. So the camps have been deemed unconstitutional by the government of PNG and um, according to the plans of the Australian federal government, the detainees have been shifted from the prison camp on Manus Island to the East Lorengau Transit Centre, um, which is where um, where Rajiv Rajendran was being held, I believe? That's right, yeah. He was being held at the East Lorengau Hospital. It's, uh, it's, you know, the Australian government took this man to Manus Island it is Australian government's responsibility. Uh, we, you know, when it when they wanted to deport uh, these refugees, they were willing to pay them. Now, when this refugee has died, it is no longer our responsibility. Mm. It's uh, it's ridiculous. It's outrageous. I I have uh, you know I'm as a member of the Tamil community, as a member of the progressive community, I'm quite outraged. Mm. On that note, um, uh, Aaron Milvaganam, thank you so much for joining us. Aaron Milvaganam is a member of the Tamil Refugee Council um, and is also a broadcaster at 3CR. We'll have more details um, about that on our website. Um, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, If anything in today's show has raised questions or caused you distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit lifeline.org.au and if you're identify as lgbti or queer and want to speak with someone from the community call q life at 1-800-184-527 or chat online at qlife.org.au and the service is open seven days a week from 3 p.m to midnight you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au